Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Sam Anwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking to Mimi Calvati. My name is Mimi Calvati, or Mimi Khalvati, in first the English pronunciation, then the Iranian, and I tend to use the English one since I grew up with it. And I'm a poet, and I originally trained as an actor and worked briefly as a theatre director. I'm Iranian by birth and parentage, but I've lived most of my life in England, in London, in fact, since I was sent here to boarding school when I was six as a child. So I've published nine poetry collections with Carcanet Press, and I was a co-founder with Jane Duran and Pascal Petit of the Poetry School. I work now as a poetry mentor and tutor, and I would love to mention a highlight of my mentoring work was with the Complete Works project with Natalie Teitler, when I worked with three wonderful poets of colour who've gone on, among many of the others, to publish and receive acclaim. Wonderful. Thank you, Mimi. So... I'm going to ask you about your work and I want you to think about your poetry. How would you describe your poetry to someone who's not read it? Well, I describe myself very much as a lyric poet. And as such, I do write mostly autobiographically. And I particularly draw on childhood as I think the wellspring of my work. And so to say little about my childhood, because it was a bit peculiar, I was born in Tehran. And then at the age of six, I was sent to Shanklin on the Isle of Wight to boarding school. And during the holidays, I went to holiday homes or I stayed with school friends. And then I didn't return to Iran till I was 17. So during all that time, my family were also in Iran and only my mother would visit every few years. So the main thing is that I lost my first language, Farsi, very, very quickly early on. And also any knowledge of my family, I couldn't really remember them. No knowledge of Persian culture or history and no sense of family history either. I did later relearn Farsi, but rather badly. Anyway, so as you can imagine, arriving in boarding school as this little child not knowing a word of English, it was a bit crucial that I had to learn the language as quickly and as well as possible. So I think language itself is at the heart of my poetry as a subject or a theme. Other than that, my themes are really traditional, loss, love, childhood, motherhood, the natural world. But I think altogether I'm less interested in themes and subject matter than in this sense of this very central void in my life. And I draw lyric poems out of that void, focusing mostly on the present moment. And the present moment is sometimes in London, sometimes in Iran, or in the Mediterranean often, in Spain, in Crete, or sometimes in cross-pollinated places. I do often write poetic sequences that are journal-like, 
I suppose, trying to find some cohesion in the face of all this fracture. So I thread these fragments together on a string. And I'm also as much interested in formal verse as in free verse and in received forms, particularly the sonnet, though I think people associate me more with the ghazal, which is the old Persian form. Wonderful. When you say you draw your work out of the void, do you mean the void that was there or the void that is there? It's a very interesting way of putting it because I've never separated the two in my mind. I think the void that was there is still the same as the void that is here now. And I think when I say I draw poems out of the void, I think most poets do in a way because we very often or more usually have no idea what we're going to write about or what we're going to say. So in that sense, we are drawing poems out of a void. You know, we have maybe just a line or an image or something and we just run with that. But I think in addition to writing in this very unprogrammatic way, I'm also trying to have a sensation of what that void is like and how do you write about nothingness? That's an interesting question for me. Yes, no, it is. I mean, you talked so eloquently and honestly about coming to the Isle of Wight at six and not going back to Iran until you're 17. And, and, you know, and losing that wider sense of family and language and culture, like you said, Persian culture. And it's just really interesting. But I'm actually, this, this might come up again for you, because the next thing I'm going to ask you is, when did you know yourself to be a poet? When did you know that who you were? I love the idea that I might actually know myself as a poet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a wonderful idea that every poet dreams of living with. But I think as long as I write, I'll be asking myself, not just am I a poet, but am I a real poet, you know, with capital letters? And don't ask me what that means. <laughs> you know that's my next question, don't you? <laughs> it's just an idea I have. Oh, a real poet. And this might be a little bit to do with imposter syndrome, because I started writing poetry totally by accident. I was working in the theatre, but I was a single mom with two small kids, no money. And a friend said, go on and off on script writing course and learn how to do scripts so you might make some money. So off I went to Arvon, and there was this course that was script writing slash poetry. It turned out no one was interested in script writing, and they said, oh, go and write some poems. So off I went and wrote some poems, and that's actually how I started. So I think this sort of idea of somehow stepping sideways out of my life into poetry has always stayed with me and perhaps raised the question that is therefore my writing poetry in some sense authentic? But actually I have now in later years, particularly since writing my last book, which is called Afterwardness, <laughs> and in that book I'm looking at the long-term effects of that displacement and early rupture in my life. I've come to realise that really it's a perfect match that really poetry suits me so well because the lyric of all things doesn't ask for facts or biography or story or narrative all the things that I lack in my life and in my memory and so without them I'm allowed in the space of lyric poetry to have legitimacy and identity 
And I think perhaps also to try and speak for many people who, especially nowadays, I think in our age of, you know, mass migration and displacement, there must be millions of people and children particularly like me who have lost all sense of their origins or their stories and nevertheless give their lives value by other means. Interesting. All right, I'm going to ask you the next question. So we've asked you to donate some items to a museum, which you have very kindly done. But before you tell us what they are, I am intrigued to know a little bit more about your relationship with museums. So how do you feel about museums? And a follow up to that is, how does it feel to be in one? Well, probably I would have to say magnificent to both questions <laughs> in one word. I mean, I think museums are pretty magnificent and therefore it must be pretty magnificent to be actually in one. But I remember when I was little feeling quite frightened in museums. I found them quite fearful because they made me realise how little I knew about anything and how impossible it was to even understand it all because it was all, everything was on such a vast and huge scale and I couldn't take it all in. And I think as a kid, I I was always trying to understand things and take them in and so on. So I, I was a bit daunted, I think. But later that feeling, of course, went away and became more one of awe rather than fear. Then I realised, of course, well, you don't have to try and take it all in. You know, you can pick and choose. And I particularly love, you know, things about Islamic art and artefacts, and particularly if it's things to do with tiles, textiles, all that multiplicity, you know, all that endless repetitive detail, all reflecting sort of millions of wildflowers in meadows or millions of stars in the sky. I I just love all that. And that reminds me a lot of lyric poetry with its rhymes, its repetitions, its meter, its cadences. So I almost think of them as synonymous, but in different modes and different genres. That's absolutely beautiful. So the rhythm of pattern is there in the rhythm of words. Yes, and I think also it's something to do with so much specificity, so much detail, and yet altogether it amounts to something more abstract. And I love that feeling of through the very concrete, through the very specific, I suppose it's almost a mystical feeling, you know, you you touch something large and perhaps even sacred, but certainly abstract or conceptual. Okay, I'm thinking about this now and I need to be talking to you, but I'm thinking about it now. So that's probably not useful. And I'm so, all right, now let's talk about your items. So tell us about your first donation. Tell us what it is and why you want to share it. Well, my first donation is an artwork in felt by the artist Christina Edlund Pater. And now I know really nothing about working with felt as an artist, but I believe what she does is she creates an image in wool and then she puts it in a food container with some water and then she shoves it in the freezer and then she microwaves it. (laughs) Can you believe And then this somehow shocks the wool fibres so that they will grab onto each other and blend and become felt. I mean, to be honest, I don't really understand it, but... 
this is what I've read, that this is how Christina describes it. And then she combines this wet felting, as it's called, with needle felting for the detail. Anyway, it's a lovely picture, quite large, I'd say. And it shows a landscape, I guess you might say, that's framed by a grapevine growing over a trellis. And in the background, you'll see three rather Islamic-looking arches through which you can see the blue sea and the blue sky and headlands in the far distance with some pine trees. Then in the foreground, under this very luscious vine, is a terrace with cane furniture, lovely colours, an orange rug, a yellow teapot, a blue mug and a white cockatoo that's perched on a chair. And of course, (laughs) since this is obviously some kind of paradise, there's an open book and some steps you can glimpse just going down to the water. So the reason I would like to donate this is that this beautiful picture was given to me by 10 poets I've worked with a long time in seminar groups, and some of whom are, are in your museum. And I'm very proud to be working with them. And during lockdown, they ran the seminars online. And then I would go along every now and then when I could as a guest. So this was an amazing gift to thank me for going. And they commissioned the artwork from the poet Miriam Nash's mother, who is the artist. And Christina, she actually read my poetry, which I can't believe. And the images she used, she drew from my actual poems. So, for example, I do have a poem with a white cockatoo and all the rest of it. But more amazing to me is, honestly, she seemed to have looked into my mind's eye and seen that kind of vision of some kind of lost paradise or some longed-for elsewhere that's always floating around behind my work, I think. So... My way of thanking them in turn is to donate the picture. To donate it so others can see it. And it is utterly beautiful. And I hope those who are listening to this podcast will go and have a look at it in the collection because it is stunning. So tell us about your next donation. My next donation is, in fact, two items belonging together, an anvil and an axe. And they belong to my maternal grandmother who we called Telogen. So the anvil is a hexagonal block of white marble, looking a bit sort of stained and well used. And the iron axe, it's about a foot long. It's got a lovely slim handle and then a very surprisingly heavy head. So my grandmother used these tools to break the sugar loaves into sugar lumps for tea. Because in Iran, of course, you drink black tea in little small glasses and they bring you the lumps of sugar to have with it. And you place the sugar lump between your teeth and sip the tea through the lump. No. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's sweet, isn't it? You sip the teeth through through the the sugar that you hold between your teeth. Yeah. It's a nice nice sort of ritual, really. So people spend all day drinking tea from the samovar. They never stop. I don't know how they drink it so hot as well, but they do. Anyway, so I was told after my grandmother died that this was the last of her domestic tasks that she did before her siesta in which she died. 
Oh, and I, I just thought that was so literally sweet, wasn't it? Because the first thing, of course, that happens is all the family and the visitors, everybody comes to pay their respects. And they're offered these little glasses of tea with the sugar lumps that she's prepared for them. Okay. Now, these tools are the only things I've actually inherited from her. And I did write a poem around them very early on in my writing life. And I think of this as my first proper poem because it was the first poem in which I first discovered the magic of form, because originally I wrote it in the wrong form and I couldn't finish it. Then I was in a bookshop one day, and of course a second-hand bookshop, and I saw a copy of Edward Fitzgerald's translation of Chayam, which is always, there's always one in the bookshop, isn't there? And I looked at it, and I the penny dropped. I went, Oh, my God, my poem must be in that form, which is Rubaiyat, which are four-line verses, three of the lines rhyming, the first two and the fourth, but not the third. And my original draft, which didn't work, was the first three lines rhymed and not the fourth. So it was the wrong way round. So I went home and very quickly I'd managed to rewrite and finish that poem because I'd actually found the right form. So anyway, I only knew my grandmother a few years when I lived with her after I went back to Iran when I was about 17. And she spoke no English. I spoke no Farsi. But she did have one English word, which she pronounced like, what's her name in My Fair Lady? Eliza. Eliza. She pronounced like Eliza. And she'd say to me, Mimi June, lovely. Lovely. Oh, if you're going to have one English word, then, then have lovely. How delightful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we love that. So of course you do have a third donation for us, but it is in the form of a poem. So are you happy to share your poem? Tell us which one you've chosen to donate and why you've chosen it, and then let us hear it. Certainly. Well, in a sense, I've already told you why I have chosen it, because this is the poem, the elegy that I wrote for my grandmother. And as I said, we called her Telojun. And this is interesting. Her name is Tela, which actually means, I think it means like talat gold in Farsi. But the June is a suffix. So Tela June. So she would call me Mimi June. <laughs> but the word June or John also means life or soul or spirit. So this poem was published in my collection Child New and Selected Poems 1991 to 2011 by Carcanet Press. Rubaiyat, for Beyond the view of crossroads ringed with breath, her bed appears, the old rose covers death has smoothed and stilled. Her fingers lie inert, her nail file lies beside her in its sheath. The morning's work over, her final chore is breaking up the sugar just before siesta, sitting cross-legged on the carpet, her slippers lying neatly by the door. The image of her room behind the pane, though lost as the winding road shifts its plane, 
returns on every strait, like signatures we trace on glass, forget and find again. I have inherited her tools, her anvil, her axe, her old scrolled mat, but not her skill. And who would choose to chip at sugar cones when sugar cubes are boxed beside the till? The scent of lilacs from the road reminds me of my own garden. A neighbouring tree grows near the fence. At night, its clusters loom like lantern moons, pearly white, unearthly. I don't mind that the lilac's roots aren't mine. Its boughs are, and its blooms. It curves its spine towards my soil and litters it with dying stars. Deadheads I gather up like jasmine. My grandmother would rise and take my arm, then sifting through the petals in her palm, would place in mine the whitest of them all. Salom, dochtare mohemam, salom. Salom, my daughter, lovely as the moon. Would that the world could see me, Telodun, through your eyes. Would that I could see a world that takes such care to tend what fades so soon. Thank you to Mimi Calvati for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Kakembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samanwar Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Due. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>